Welcome back to another episode of the Global Startup Movement with me, Andrew Berkowitz. Today, we're coming to you from our studio at Peace Tech Lab in the U.S. Institute of Peace campus, where I was joined by one of my favorite guests that we've ever had on the show and one of my favorite people, Viola Llewellyn, who is a co-founder of Ovamba. Ovamba is a serious player in the Africa fintech ecosystem. They provide a platform to unlock funding for SMEs across the continent. And Viola is a fountain of knowledge on so many different topics. Once you start listening, you'll understand why I've had Viola on more times than I've had anyone else on the show. So why don't we just get right into it? Here's my conversation with Viola Llewellyn, co-founder at Ovamba. Now cue the music. studio right now with Vaya Llewellyn from Ovamba, uh, one of my favorite people in the Africa business community, probably just one of my favorite people, period. Um, I should be the favorite. The favorite, the number one. You're definitely, you're definitely top five. I, I can't disclose, you know, I have friends and family, you know, all that, but... We don't uh, want any hurt feelings. No, we do not, but I'm, I'm so grateful you're here. We, um, uh, it's good when we can get you away from from Cameroon and and get you actually in DC. Mm-hmm. That's that, that's fantastic. So why don't we start off with what is your title with Ovamba and some of your ex- extracurricular activities outside of that? <laughs> extracurricular. Okay. Yes. So I am the co-founder and president of Ovamba Solutions Inc. And I do have two co-founders, Marvin Cole and Prashant Mahajan. Mm. But when I am not. Uh, building trade tech solutions for the African market. I am in hotels and I'm on aeroplanes and I have been unanimously voted by myself, party of one, to become, I am the official unofficial minister of stairs and standards for the entire African continent. Okay, so all, all countries, all 55? Absolutely, every last one of them, I'm in charge. Okay, and why is that? What's needed? What's needed in that, in that sector? When we first started in Cameroon, Marvin always had us in apartments where we would take up two or three on an entire floor and that would be the Ovamba office. We were a startup. We were very, very scrappy, very edgy. Mm. And I noticed that staircases were horrifically off kilter. The steps were uneven. They were at an angle. It was very difficult to find anything that was perfectly uh, plumbed. And I began to notice this and I would complain that, well, is there nobody in charge of standards or even just stairs. Then I'd go to hotels and I'd find some very dodgy, strange things. Mm. And I started doing these videos on Facebook and assigning what we call langa points. Now, if somebody in Cameroon comes up to you and strokes their throat and goes langa, it means greedy, jealous. So I started showing people beautiful places and not so beautiful places. And I'd invite them online and they would assign how many langa points for this hotel room. And I'd always start every video with that. I'm the official unofficial minister of and standards because I want to show people how nice things are and point out when things are pretty bad. Well, that was a, so I think most of the hotels that you stay at in Cameroon are pretty nice. Some, Some of them really are very right, nice. right, right on the beach, Even too. The, oh, Hotel <laughs> Ilomba. I did was, a video okay. and they had a gallery. Mm. The floor was smooth, it was parquet, it was inlaid with granite. 
It had a viewing balcony that was perfectly plumbed. The stairs were excellent. I had never seen anything so graciously symmetrical, and it made my heart swoon. It was brilliant. Yeah. Well, oh, it's yeah. great. It's great that you put out that type of content on your Facebook because it uh, stuff like that and stuff like this challenges mm-hmm. the narrative and the perception that it people have does. in their mind, especially here in the U.S. of, mm-hmm. of what Africa's like. Um, you know, obviously tourism is a big industry where there's a lot of potential for a lot more money to and flow in Africa. And underplayed. There's not as much tourism on the African continent as you would wish or hope for. And that is one of the mm. reasons why these stereotypes persist. Because what are your favorite countries you've been to, Andrew? In, in Africa or just in general? Anywhere in general. I really loved, I love Nairobi. I love, oh, who I love time in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Um, I connected very brief, briefly through Casablanca mm-hmm. on my way to, to Lisbon for, for Web Summit a couple years ago. Uh, and the, the Airbnb that I stayed at mm. was just unbelievable. I stayed at a good one in Ghana. I should have done a Langer Points video then. So those are the next two. So my, you know, the next markets I need to go to in Africa are Ghana, Ethiopia, Rwanda. Those are top. Come to the Francophone side. Come join us. I know. I haven't been to Francophone <laughs> really either. Um, yeah. You know, one thing that's, that I actually hear a lot, I want to get your thoughts on. So when you go to somewhere that's more on the Ang- Anglophone side mm-hmm. of Africa, the infrastructure beyond the cities are is a little bit built out. Like there are roads there. Mm-hmm. But specifically within Francophone Africa, like if you go to Abidjan, it's the infrastructure is just Abidjan. Outside of there is... It's very different. It's very different. And, and even the infrastructure in the city, there could be some better town planning, city planning, trying to expand beyond what the population is doing today, not just the numbers. We don't see very much of that. And this is why what started out as a joke is actually a really serious point. Mm. And if you factoring tourism... What's not happening is people coming back from a great vacation in some of these places and wanting to recreate those experiences back home. So they can't go into the local Safeway and, and ask for um, a composite bag of spices to recreate Mbongo Chobi or uh, Timbana Busa or any of those things that we eat. Whereas you can go to Mexico, you can go to Peru, you can go to any of those places and you can come back and find that Dole or any of those other brands, Loti, are recreating the foods that you ate on holiday that you can now do in your home and have that feeling and that emotion and that experience to continue. Mm. Well, the African experience tends to end on the continent. You can't export it for other people to experience and share with you. Because when you come back from holiday, you show your pictures, talk about food, you try to make it, your friends come on and they go, oh, what's this? And you say, hey, this is a bit of what I ate when I was away. And people get that yearning. Mm. We have yet to capitalize on that properly. Right. That makes sense. Well, one thing I think is happening is uh, mainly within the entertainment areas where Africa is being exported Mm -hmm. and it seems like the Black Panther catalyzed it catalyzed something in the entertainment industry and now you know when I turned on when I turn on the radio around here all I hear is Burna Boy and and DeVito and all these all these Nigerian artists and uh, now I'm, I'm we're a, I'm in a an huge, interesting space I'm a huge Burna Boy fan by the way recently over the past year I've discovered him I, I am at a slight disadvantage I'm going to be perfectly honest and transparent here okay 
I am beginning to really enjoy Afrobeat music. I love it. At one point, I couldn't tell one person from another. <laughs> um, that's because for the longest time, my shameful secret was I was a heavy metal fan, a closet heavy mm. metal freak. And you don't, you don't have to be in the closet with that. That's... I am out of that closet. <laughs> but I'm also, since Black Panther, yes. really begun to enjoy and expand my musical palette. Mm. I have uh, even my little cousin, Crispy, the Daredevil rapper, um, would take me to task because he blends a lot of these beats. But the fact is, with Nigerian music, if you go to a Cameroonian party, they're playing Nigerian music. Mm. Good as it is, it makes me annoyed because once upon a time we used to say Nigerians had the worst music on the planet, but that continent, that country of human beings has so much chutzpah, has so much passion that they are the lead. They're the lead of anything they choose to put their mind to. Right. Cameroon always had the most amazing music. Now we're emulating something else and forgetting our own diversity and our own roots of music, which is just as good. And I love the blend. And I like the idea of collaboration and cooperation with music. But it's going to be another fighting landscape for the arts as it relates to tunes. Yeah, yeah. Because people don't know Cameroonian music. It's pretty decent. I mean, I wonder which. I mean, it doesn't really seem like another African country has 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 come even close to what Nigeria has been able to, yeah, to do. Yeah, they in, are in the, the behemoth, and I'm so proud of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense with uh, the. I mean, that Nigerian spirit is. If there if there was just the right channels for them to actually put that energy towards back mm-hmm. home to actually build companies, if it was more of a capitalistic society, I think yeah. it would. You know, the, Although they are more capitalistic and forward than many that I've encountered, we were recently pitching to a bank and the uh, the chairman who was at the meeting basically asked us a bunch of questions, asked for the demo, asked his key leadership what they thought, and he just went with his hands on the table and said, I need that pilot in here in two weeks' time, got up. He said, these people are assigned to make it happen. That does not happen in Francophone-led countries. I've seen that behavior in Ghana I've seen a little bit of it in Kenya, but we are, unfortunately, I hate even the fact that we use someone else's language to define and divide ourselves. That makes no sense whatsoever. But there is a total difference in how these groups do business and look at capitalism. Could, could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. The language? To, what yeah. do you mean? I just said Francophone countries, didn't I? Mm-hmm. These are countries that have been colonized by France. Their main official language is French, usually. So take a country like Cameroon, we're bilingual. We've got all of these disruptions that are being defined along language lines. Mm. But these are not our original languages. These are not our original cultures. Yet we are arguing and fighting and defining ourselves by something that comes from outside. There could not be a more well-architected piece of disruption than bringing in an outside influence to make people divide each other. Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, all of these other countries where I'm seeing a reduction in French speaking and more people speaking English. And we're supposed to say this is good, and in a way, it is. But I noticed when I was in Nigeria and Ghana, in offices, people are speaking their own dialects to each other in business. Blew me away. Mm. Uh, Because I truly believe that your ability to authentically express yourself in your own native language is a right and it's a choice. But for some of us, that's not available. We have to use somebody else's language in order to speak to people who look and sound just like us. 
And it's, I think it's creating a bit of a challenge. But better than that, there's an opportunity here to refine who we are in the modern parlance and dividing ourselves and understanding our ethnicity based on these other language structures, I think is becoming problematic. Hmm. Interesting. And do you think tech in this, this, mo- this modern day startup movement in Africa is, mm-hmm. is, is the, a channel for that to happen in the Francophone countries? Because one, one th- so one thing is that, you know, Francophone, um, I think it was you, I think it was you that told me this quote where it was like the problem in Francophone is people, uh, don't have this, 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 uh, mantra of ask for forgiveness. And, mm. and, you know, they want to ask for permission before they do something, right? And that's yes. that's a part of the culture that needs to go away if there's going to be a thriving startup culture, mm-hmm. you know? Startups, by their very nature, are seeking to insert themselves into a space that previously didn't have anything like them. And if you want to call it disruption, that's good. I was in Istanbul last week and had breakfast with a lady yesterday morning who was explaining to me that in the Turkish language, the word disrupt means destroy. And she was arguing that from a tech standpoint, it's not about that. It's about changing uh, the existing order the way it is in order to bring something new that will improve. Now, in these parts of the world, the idea of needing to ask permission is really because... Um, autonomy is frowned upon it's very difficult to disrupt an incumbent new ideas that come from the youth are difficult when the leadership is twice your age and even the french language itself makes it very hard to quickly transmit ideas and create lingo as you go along it's easier in english and it's easier to do business in english so I think that there are some inherent disadvantages, but I'm seeing the tech startup space with the youth coming up with new ways to do things better. And for them, the struggle is real. It really is real, but there's some phenomenal successes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, one thing you... you so one thing you just said there mm. is... Uh, has been translated into the fintech ecosystem. Yes. Where it's, it hasn't been a narrative... Uh, maybe maybe people thought at first it was a narrative of the fintechs coming in and replacing the banks, but that's not that's not what's happening. That's I was not... one of the people who was so wrong about that. Mm. I remember running around after the very first Lendit conference where there were 230 tech startups in New York six years ago. Marvin, myself, one of our investors, the only black people standing in a room of other guys who all looked like they had it together and everybody was saying the same thing. Banking is dead. It's going to go away. There's going to be something else. There aren't many of those companies don't exist today. The industry has exploded and grown. There are thousands of fintechs now. Huge focus on uh, building mobile wallets, payment solutions. And some of us have broken away and don't even call ourselves what we were then, which was peer-to-peer crowdfunding market makers we're none of that anymore but i and marvin sat down and took a look at the ecosystem and realized we were forgetting the customer the customer need the customer experience and what the trajectory for business growth is going to be and going to need banks are not going anywhere tomorrow banks will learn to curate services we're not going to hear people talking about um, market segmentation we'll be looking at every individual customer based on their needs and what's the best way to deliver quick, efficient, well-priced services to them. We now today partner with banks. I never thought that was going to happen. Right. I'm so glad I was wrong. Yeah. Well, I think, 
I, I don't think disrupting banks would, would even be a good thing for Africa because they provide a lot of jobs. Yes, they do. And that's a very thorny topic. I've had some lovely arguments with people about jobs at banks and the uh, primary and secondary impact of the people employed there because right. they're part of the solution and the challenges. Yeah, but, but banks I mean, are going to stay. So, so do you want to talk about your your new partnership with the UBA? Because it's 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 big. Ah, it's big news. It is big news, and yes. we're so excited. You know, a few years ago, we tried to go speak to other banks, and we didn't even have the right language to find the synergies, and neither did those banks understand that there was anything outside of what a banking license can do. And our idea to them was, you're not helping businesses to develop wealth. You've got all these uh, passive account holders who never grow. You don't get any real insight into them. You can't do anything with these guys, but we can help you. And the idea when we spoke to UBA was, how would you like it if those customers who are going to leave you or are multi-banked, who you never sell services to, if you could partner with us for us to provide on your behalf our technology, our risk models, and help you with funding them with trade finance on a non-interest-bearing way so that we can bring your non-performing loans down. This was the magic key. This was the language that they've been looking for. That's when they said, how? I said, it's going to cost you very little, but you're going to get more than your current 11% share of wallet and your customers are not going to leave, and we'll train your RMs, and we'll make the technology available. They did a great job of reviewing it, and they said yes. And so we're very excited. Yeah. So, so Obama's one day is going gonna, is, is gonna to be a Harvard case study on how to build a tech-enabled business Wouldn't in Wouldn't that be groovy? And if yes. every one of those case studies was, dis, was translated into an African language for others to read, would be the icing on the cake. Yes, for sure. That's or maybe the soup on the fufu in this case. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell, tell us a little bit about this term that you, you keep using, trade tech. Yeah. Uh, you, so, I mean, you, you, I, I'll say confidently on this show right now, you, you have coined trade tech. I've never heard another person come out there here and say There is a story about that. Oh, we were is. working with an amazing uh, communications group in London about three, four years ago. And Marvin first said, trade tech and they looked him in the eye and said no such thing it's never gonna fly and this is the the sad thing about being a startup your ideas have to take flesh and it's very easy for people who appear to be more experienced than you to tell you you're wrong but the truth is an entrepreneur needs to say i might be wrong but i'm gonna make it real and that's what we did we didn't abandon the word because we knew that uh, some form of trade support was necessary for the informal sector because that's what most of them are doing, especially women. They're buying and selling something and they're suffering from um, cash flow management. And so we sat down one day. I remember I was almost in tears. It was emotional. I was angry. I kept looking at companies growing, Jumia and all these people just skyrocketing with their lovely little hockey J-sticks, thinking, why aren't we like that? And I thought keep talking about blue oceans we know how to make one but we haven't done it where is our courage and that's when i said to marvin we're not what everybody especially vcs ask for but we keep on changing pitch decks changing ourselves to suit the language versus telling people nah you don't need to fund us but we are what we are when we did that andrew that's when things changed we said we're trade tech 
call this a subsidiary within fintech, but we're really finding ways to use technology to enable trade so that we can generate more profits, more revenue. And we're going to do it using Islamic finance uh, concepts. Right. Nobody else was doing that. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, very few people do what we do. Everybody said, well, you're, you're trying to do too much and you're muddying your message. Yes, we're nibbling on the butt of an elephant, but we're going to keep on chewing till this thing is down to the bone. Right. And that's that. Yeah. Here we are today. We've gone to banks and said, we're not competitors to you. We're going to give you a trade finance solution for the informal sector. And they all went, we don't have that. Now you do. Perfect. This is the Harvard case study that you're talking about. How can we find a new way to make money available without lending? It yeah. sounds like a, some sort of a, a, a trick, but it isn't. There's different ways to create velocity of capital. Yeah. A trade tech does that. Mm. Well, I mean, that's very, very similar to, I feel like, you know, my story and then dealer's mm -hmm. story of, you know, we have the, like w with, with podcasting, uh -huh. where the industry has, has, has kind of directed itself. You, you had this, you had Gimlet Media. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gimlet. I am. So they're, I am they're based in New York. Spotify bought them for a hundred million dollars, um, a couple of years. Well, it was, they bought them and another sort of anchor in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley for a hundred million dollars. And when, when Gimlet first started out, they were producing very high budget podcasts that, you know, maybe had a million dollar budget. Okay. And what, and, and, and so at first that, that seemed like the right model for podcasting, but what, where the industry has gone is more towards, um, communities built off of personalities. Yeah. And why has that happened? Well, per, when you have a personality that could run a show, you can run a show very, very cheaply, right? Cause you don't have to have this huge budget. It's just the, the personality on the mic. Yeah. And so the margins on that type of show are so much better than a show that's, you know. That's a change in model, isn't it? It is a change in model. Yeah. For sure. And so, you know, uh, and the reason I bring that up is because, and, and Dina and I both were separately building these kind of personality brands that were very, very reliant on us. And so, yeah. and so it was an, it was a very, it was an issue for a couple of years because it was like, how, how does that scale? How, do, how does this actually turn into a business that, you know, we could walk away from? But then the industry kind of came to us. Mm -hmm. And the model that we were building. And it's the same thing with you. I think I saw that without realizing what I was seeing. I've had the pleasure of being on both of your shows. And they're both world-class excellent. You guys know Thank you. what you're doing. <laughs> and the first thing I felt when I walked away from either show was, these guys are creating markets. They're creating listening ears to the ground on people like us who are somewhat invisible globally. You've got to be in the know to know. But you have brought this visibility to so many of us that is just insanely brilliant, and I love it. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very oh, yeah, grateful I'm for so that. Excited. And so um, the, the lesson here, though, there, mm -hmm. there's a lesson in both of our stories. And the lesson is that when you're building something, uh, it's actually okay if you're the only one and everyone is telling you you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Because they're probably wrong. They're, they're, there's a groupthink. There's a herd mentality that happens yes. in markets. And... Uh, I noticed this in the in the crypto space too. When the, in the last bubble, people the, there was uh, uh, this kind of repetition of the infrastructure layer is where the trillion dollar opportunity is in crypto. Uh, that conversation has changed now, mm -hmm. and everyone's saying the opposite. And so it's kind of that that was my first real you know big market cycle because uh, we've been in this great you know uh, bull market for so long now yes. that most millennials haven't experienced the market cycle. They, That's they, dangerous. They, it's very, it is very dangerous. I agree. I don't know when the next recession is coming. It's coming. It That's like being pregnant forever. 
Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you cut interest rates to zero and just leave them there and think you that fixed problems. When yeah. You, you know, didn't really, didn't really. So we'll see how that plays out. But you know, it's 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 it. This this is a lesson a lesson of uh, the the you know being able to think of something on your own and mm-hmm. have a conviction of that in and the face of through. and see it through like that's 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 what entrepreneurship is and that's why there's a dip you know when you're building a company because you have to kind of put yourself out there during the time when everyone else is disagreeing with you mm-hmm. to be in a position to actually uh be proven right when yeah. the market shifts right and so that's what you've done brilliantly that's what a Thank lot of you. different african startups have done brilliantly um but you know, one, one one concept that you kind of touched on there that I want to dive into more is is Sharia fintech. Uh, and that so yeah. that that's that's another thing that you all, that you all have coined. <laughs> you know, I, I I did not hear anybody talking about that even in the North Africa region. I'm like gonna I, coin the term crescent tech one of these days because when you look what at what was that word crescent? Yeah, you've got the crescent moon and and those logos that you associate with. Islamic or Sharia. Yes. There is an umbrella concept of all of the different types of products that can be developed, whether it's a murabaha like we have, which is for trade, or ijara, or, which is to do, there's the insurance ones, musharakas. There are all these different things. And Marvin actually made me go get uh, certified. Mm. Happened here in Washington, D.C. And we got our, uh, our corporate certification through the Sharia Review Board of Bahrain. And I remember when we were interviewed and there was a piece about us in the Washington Post, the guy actually said, well, can you prove that you're certified? And I said, actually, I'm, here's the certificate. And I sent it to him and he went, oh my word, it's real. Yes, it's real. You can be uh, Sharia compliant or you can be Sharia certified or you can be Sharia light. There are so many different variations in, in the entire concept, but knowing how to put structures and contracts together so that um, you don't have reba, which is uh, in interest, mm-hmm. knowing when something is haram or, um, or any of the other terminologies around it. And for us, we started out with a very simple idea because we'd stumbled onto it almost by mistake. How can we get money to businesses without actually being a bank? which means we're not going to um, provide, we're not going to take interest or charge interest. We're going to have to, in the case of a Murabaha, have physical and legal ownership of the asset. Mm. And that solved all of our problems. So I was speaking to Marvin via um, SMS just yesterday, having spent a week of due diligence with new investors in Cameroon. And he was explaining that, he said, do you realize there's actually a term for what we've been doing? And I think he said it was called collateralized warehouse finance. Hmm. I'd have to take a look at it. And I said, what's that? He says, it's what we've been doing. We've become the Airbnb of warehousing in the area because we figured in from a Sharia standpoint, if we're going to have to physically own the asset and have physical ownership of it, it's got to be somewhere where we control the space. But we don't want to go and build a bunch of warehouses. And that's when we looked closely at our customers and realized, and neither can they. So why don't we pay attention to the, um, the SDGs for the United Nations and looking at the environment and using what exists. And that's when we thought about taking all of the existing warehouse space and being able to use it for in, in different ways and become really strategic, bring down the cost. And that's when uh, the Sharia Review Board said, that's what makes this a murabaha, the physical and legal ownership of an asset that you share 
with the customer who has to buy it back over a period of time. So when you go to UBA and talk to them and they realize we can't over collateralize anymore with customers because those kinds of transactions from our portfolio experimentation in the emerging markets is very bad, doesn't work. It's absolutely horrific mm. because people will walk away and say, okay, you got my land, you got my house, I'm done. But when you have their goods that they need to sell, this is a totally different conversation. And we solve the bank's problems because they can't take assets on their books, but we can manage it for them. This is, I think it's the beginning of a brand new asset class. And there will be individuals that will sit around trying to value that market, which is somewhere around about 2.3 trillion for trade. Wow. And not a lot of movement other than LCs to solve it. Amazing. <clears throat> well, congrats. I mean, you're, Thank you. you position yourself in a way that is a, taken a long time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. when, when did you start Avamba? We started Avamba in 2013. Okay. And our very first transaction was April 12th of 2014. Okay. All right. So I'll it's been, it's been, a, it's been a little while. Yeah. But we're yeah. not just saying that we can't really call ourselves a startup anymore. Right. Well, exactly. Well, what is it? How do you know when you've stopped being a startup? I don't even know the answer. Intuition. Yeah. Yeah. Intuition. I mean, you know, I mean, I would say series, series B maybe is when uh. you become scale up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there's That's, a hard science. About, you know. I don't think there's a hard science either. I don't yeah. think it's... Especially in Africa. Point. Especially, you know. Oh, but isn't our growth different? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all in a different conversation. We need, di- we need different funds that invest in Africa. And we need a bunch of people to sit around the table for that one. Yeah. I don't think that Avamba can be considered a startup anymore, even with all of our recent pivots, mm. because the ethos has stayed the same. And the levels at which we've raised capital have only escalated. And we are revenue positive and even on a unit basis profitable. It means that sometimes we fall into a gap with individuals that are looking for the startup that they can advise. We don't want your advice. Well, not that kind of advice. We could use advice, but not that one. Right. And then there is the other side of things where they say, well, can you absorb 50 million? Well, over what period of time? Considering that our with especially with these kind of Islamic structures, they throw off capital very quickly. Okay. So we could either either dig deep and go for organic growth and not be a WeWork, or we can uh, keep on taking capital, which I don't feel comfortable doing at mm. all. Somewhere in, it's, it, I'm sure somebody can advise us and tell us what's the right way. But at the moment, we're speaking to people who are comfortable to be flexible with what we're saying. Mm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. I've, le- I've learned a lot from this conversation. Well, I learned a lot from you. You're very thought-provoking, Andrew, so this is Thank great. Thank you. I try, to, I, I, I try to take time every day to just think. Like, yep. like literally, I, I put you know maybe 30 minutes, an hour on my calendar to literally just like sit down and devices off and just think think about things. I think that, that's important we for... We do that in the office, and it's, um, it's from that uh, show, The One Thing. Okay. So we yeah. have one thing time. And if you go around the Ovamba office, you'll see people with a notice that says, until my one thing is done, everything else is a distraction. Mm. And they actually book that from this time to this time. I'm not taking phone calls. You can't come and ask me if you've got a minute or any of those things. You, you just shut down to get work done. Marvin is a master of that. I can do it, but my brain works differently from his. So I have short bursts of one thing, whereas mm. he can go six, seven hours. Yeah. 
I wow. have to go around and speak to people. <laughs> right. When they're not on right. their one thing. Yeah. All right. Well, amazing. Well, well I'm co-founder and president of Avamba. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, official, yes. unofficial minister for stairs and standards oh, excuse me. for excuse all me. of Africa. Yes. Is that is that your only other hat? I'm sure you have you have others, right? Um, purple Widow, because Prince is dead. Oh man, yeah. Batman's yeah. Uh, wannabe sidekick. You, yeah, so I, I noticed on your laptop you have bat, some Batman stickers. Yeah, that's a, that's all you have actually on it, just that's Batman. Right. Oh, and Vincent Llewellyn's wife. That's like nice. my number one favorite title. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you.